Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is Thursday, November 8th. We're two days after the midterm election. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of the outlines were clear on election day or election night. But as is always the case, you don't get all this, you don't get all the information on election night. There's a lot of races that only get decided, uh, you know, a couple days out. There are, I think, still a good 10 House races that are still undetermined. There is highly likely going to be a recount in Florida. So uh, the Republicans are obviously in in what appears to be in the better position, but those aren't, those aren't uh, settled. Uh, there's still a lot of counting to go in the Arizona uh uh, senators race and there's you know miscellaneous things that are that are still out there. What we're going to talk about today is everything beneath the federal level, or specifically ha- uh, state legislative races. Now, uh, I guess it was well, I don't <laughs> everything's a bit of a blur, David. W- when did we have Daniel on? That was last a couple week, of or? weeks ago. Oh, I, I don't think it was. It. I think it was last. Maybe week. it was just last week. It was last week, right? It was a different world. Right. It was a different world. Well, uh, Daniel Squadron is a former New York State legislator. And tell us the name of the group again. Uh, Future Now. And that is focused on flipping uh, state legislative chambers. Uh, Flipping state legislative chambers uh, through Future Now Fund, our PAC, and working with them to achieve success uh, once they're in office through Future Now. Got it. All right. So what we're going to do in today's episode, we are going to find out what happened on that front. And I would assume there's still some level of uh, things still in play, but I think we have the the, the general outline. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Want in on New York's favorite cold brew? Of course you do. I'm just going to give you... See, you know, we, we've, we've had the same copy now for a while. We need to get new copy. So I'm going to do the I'm going to do like an annotated version of <laughs> Let's the copy. Hear it. So okay, so yes, you do want it. Uh, head to gradyscoldbrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market. Okay, I think that's that's all. That's that fair. All, that all checks out. I'm drinking it right now. Yeah, uh, David's drinking it right now. Uh, using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans. And chicory imported from France. Now we, I, you know, I was, I go back. Sometimes I don't, I don't listen to the podcast like when they come out because like I was there when it happened, right? <laughs> right? But I, but I go back and listen to them later. And we've had like a running conversation about the chicory in France. That's true. France has a lock on chicory, apparently. Apparently, or they've got the best chicory. Would you, Daniel? Would you have thought that the chicory's from France? I didn't know that. I know that in Africa, uh, coffee is is much easier to get than coffee in Wait, much what? of sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, basically, a coffee substitute made with chicory, exactly, or more chick. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I would have figured. I would have figured that chicory is you know something grown in, in Southeast Asia or or uh, East Africa or something like that. But apparently, France. It's still like a I don't think of like any, I mean, I think of like cheese. I just told you all I know about chicory. I also think Cafe du Monde in New Orleans has a lot of chicory. Exactly. New Orleans, it's a New Orleans style. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's the, I think, you know, I think what it is, is the, I think where that originally comes from is that when you had shortages of coffee and and you would cut it with chicory to, you know, not extend its life, but to make it go further. I think that's, I think that's where it. 
starts from. Anyway, so running debate about chicory. Uh, so anyway, they, so let, let's let's review. They get they get the beans from sort of like the established places. They get chicory from France, which we're assuming is like a good thing. Uh, and here's let's pick it up. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. That's good. You don't want to you know you don't want extra. Uh, needless calories. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. I've actually, I'm not sure I've met the actual Grady, but I have, like, You've in corresponded. person. Corresponded. There's a real Grady. This isn't like some, like, Madison Avenue, <laughs> you know, one of these things when you get, like, uh, a, you know, um, you know, kind of corporate manufactured right. spaghetti sauce, and it's like Mama Francesca, <laughs> and like there's no mom. There's actually a Grady. Okay, so let, let's let's bring this home. Ready to give it a swirl? Get twenty percent off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Okay, so we got that done, David. Uh, it was it's been pretty intense. 72, 48 yeah. hours at, here at TPM. It was, Are absolutely. you recovered? Are you... I'm getting there. Okay. I had a good night's sleep last night. That helps. I feel like the team did really well. Yeah, me too. Kind of in, in, in a lot of different... Uh, we even had some technical issues with the site, which, yep. which didn't, you know, uh, the public didn't see, but obviously punches you've got to roll with yep, uh, absolutely. for the staff. Yeah, I thought it went smoothly. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I mean, and it's obviously... Um, you know, one of the things about covering elections is people have strong opinions, but mm-hmm. they need to... Uh, you still need to get the job done, and so it's yeah, a lot of absolutely. a lot of things that uh, get figured into that. Okay, Daniel. So when we when in our in our in our earlier interview, my recollection. So we know the baseline is is that over the Obama years or over the last decade, you know, depending on how wh- how you want to um, define it, the GOP picked up over nine hundred legislative seats around the country. And my recollection is you said there's a little more than 7,000 totally uh, total in 99 chambers. Now, what I remember you saying was that Nebraska's unicameral. Right. Uh, that if it was a, you know, kind of like about what we'd expect the results to be, you pick up 300 or so. If it's sort of like a tsunami, it's 500. So what happened? Uh, well, I think we're right in between there. Okay. Uh, and, you know, it's, I think, easy to forget. So some of the most inspiring candidates on uh, did the Democratic ticket nationally didn't win, Beto or Stacey yep. Abrams. Uh, Gillum may yet, but it looks right. behind. Uh, I guess Stacey Abrams yeah, also Yeah, that's still going to, they're, they're, we don't know, we do not know the final answer there. That's still, and, and uh, people in Georgia want to count all the votes as they should. So we'll, we'll but it's, Absolutely. But certainly it, it's, You'd want to. You'd you'd rather be Kemp now than 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 Abrams. Right, and they weren't called on election night. Right, but the thing that happened on election night under that is obviously we flipped the house and really went above the baseline of what kind of was reasonably expected based on all of the polling and all the research out there. So, you know, it looks like it'll be significantly over 30 seats flipping in the house um you know we thought the kind of a, a big ripple remember just just flipping the house in this gerrymandered environment right, is a big, big deal, deal. Yeah. a lot more than yeah. we did under in obama's even re-election in 2012 right so uh we've gone beyond that you know kind of the baseline at the 21 to 25 seat was five chambers mm-hmm. uh we thought that that really uh were very likely we're at six uh seven if you count connecticut going from a tie 
um, to Democratic. Now, what about total seats? I know you don't have an exact number, but what are the what's the ballpark? Like it's going to be over three hundred seventy-five. Okay, uh, we think it'll actually be a little over four hundred. Okay, so if we're talking about you know a little over three as the the baseline wave, and a little over five as the tsunami, right? Right in between those. Okay, so that so so and 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 so that a white may, cap, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, it's, I mean that sounds like sort of as you said. I mean, right now when I before we came on air, I looked, and there are thirty-one confirm Democratic pickups in the House, uh, they will almost highly likely to get to at least 35, and they could get close to 40. And that is kind of, as you just said, that is that is considerably over the baseline. It's not the tsunami that may be like, wow, they're going to get 50 or 60, but, you know, right in the middle. So, and, and, and to put that in perspective, that means that almost half of the seats lost over the last decade, that kind of 900 plus number people focus on, upwards of half of that will will have been reclaimed. Yeah, close to half, I think at a minimum, uh, okay. which is really significant. Yeah, it's a big deal. And it's also significant because that number includes the former districts that weren't as badly gerrymandered as the current districts. So there's a structural disadvantage right. built into that number. So to get it back to zero would be phenomenal. It would actually be higher than the original high watermark. Got it. Got it. So yeah, by that measure, we're certainly closing more than half the distance. So w- walk us through, to the extent things are known now... Which chambers walk us through? And I know that there were uh, in something you showed me, or maybe something we discussed in the last episode. There are also these chambers where there's like a super majority, and you want to get down to just a major, you know, majority because that has different effects in different states. So walk us through the, the on a chamber basis what happened. Right. So here in New York, flipped the chamber, uh, and in fact, looks like created a Democratic supermajority. Um, uh, the Colorado Senate flipped. The main Senate uh, has flipped, even with some seats still out, outstanding. Both houses in New Hampshire flipped. The Minnesota House. And that's odd, because didn't it... So New Hampshire flipped, even though the governor went to the Republicans. That's right. Well, the, the Sununu won. Um, and, but both, both chambers flipped. An interesting thing that happens in New Hampshire, because the districts are so small in the House, one thing is, when you look at the overall national numbers, a lot of that is New Hampshire House. So far, it's 59 of the 370 or so seats. Oh, right, because it's so massive. Right, 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 right. right, right. Uh, also, okay. it really tracks the Senate. When, this, when a party picks up in the Senate, mm-hmm. it tends to pick up dozens in the House. Got it. And so okay. we, saw, we saw that happen. Um, you know, with five seats in the Senate, two of which are within less than 200 votes. By right. The way. Um, and, for, and here you're talking about the New Hampshire Senate. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. I always assume a state before right, any right, talk right, of right, House right, or Senate right, with right. me. Um, uh, so the Minnesota House uh, flipped and actually really significantly needed 11 seats. Uh, looks like it got 17. Uh, and then Connecticut went from a tie to a Democratic majority. Then there are some places where uh, supermajorities um, uh, were broken. In the Michigan Senate, the supermajority was broken. In the North Carolina House and the North Carolina Senate, the supermajority was broken. Really important in both states because both states now will have Democratic governors. And a Democratic governor, as um, as we saw in North Carolina over the last couple of years, with legislative supermajorities on the other side, can be run all over. Now, I would assume that basically means that they can sustain or they're in a position to sustain their vetoes, right? Is, are there exactly other right. kind of things beyond that? Uh, in some states, it can also help with the budget um, okay. meaningfully. Right, uh, right. But, yeah, but you know, the ability to sustain vetoes helps not just with those bills. It helps when you negotiate everything. 
Right, right. Because it's not it's not an effective threat for a governor to to have on a broad array of bills. Right, if you don't. right. Now let me ask you because one thing I noticed I was I was kind of going back and looking through the results uh, this morning, and uh, I, I don't know if maybe there was one flip, but at least a number of the sort of the you know toss up to reach states uh, districts for the Democrats in North Carolina. GOP held on pretty well there. That was a good, you know, all things considered, they they uh, they did pretty well in North Carolina, and yet you're saying they had significant losses in yeah. the in this at the state legislative level. Uh, yeah, and, and our view, they overperformed. Sort of, you know, if if you were to say wave versus tsunami nationally, mm-hmm. what happened in each state? We think North Carolina is actually an overperformer. Okay, with ten seats uh, net, we believe fl- flipping in the uh, House, and. Um, uh, six uh, net flipping in the Senate. We think that's a that's an overperformance. It's significant. Just to give you a sense, the majority to uh, to flip um, the North Carolina House, you had to flip fifteen mm-hmm. to get to a tie, and and ten of those flipped this year. So it's a big so, deal. So let me ask you. Okay, so if they overperformed relative to sort of the you know the national mean or or whatever, is why better organizing a specific organization in the state why what do you what do you attribute that overperformance to so this is a, the core question it goes back to our prior conversation it goes to my feeling about the most important urgent thing for for us to think about going into 2020 the national wave sets the watermark but states and candidates can float above it or sink below it mm-hmm. based on really we think two things one is a multi-cycle focus on legislatures. They've had that in North Carolina going back now to 2014. They've built some really strong in-state infrastructure that's coordinated um, among levels of government. The governor, Roy Cooper, invested a huge amount in the legislature this year. Now, when you say inve- you mean like literally, like in, in terms of like uh, fundraising for the state legislature? I believe he like pledged the cycle, this two-year cycle to right. only raise for legislature. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, and does the whole Moral Monday thing fit as a big part of this, or how's that? Well, it's it's a piece of what you what you have in North Carolina, which is a lot of energy, right? And really well coordinated energy, right? Uh, and you know, you see that top to bottom mm-hmm. in the okay. state. You also see it in Nevada, um, you know, which which uh, had significant gains, added two seats to the majority last night. You know, Harry Reid made that a priority down to the legislative level mm-hmm. um, toward the end of his time in office. Right. Colorado's another right. state that's had that in multiple places. Right. And then states that didn't, uh, like Arizona, where our organization did a lot of work. Arizona, you know, we're in pretty good shape. The House is likely, there's still hundreds of thousands of votes uncounted in Arizona, as we know from U.S. Senate context. Right, right, but right. it looks like it's in a position to have the closest... Um, spread in the House since 1966, Barry Goldwater era. Okay. At 29 to 31, it could be a little better than that. In a bad scenario, that could still change with new right. votes. But you know, that's a place Is where it's really that new. It'll flip? Uh, it's it's possible to get a tie. Okay, interesting. You, interesting. It, it it really could tie up depending on on what comes in uh, from uh, Maricopa and a couple of other counties. So uh, it's really close. You know, by the way, these places. A couple hundred votes in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. In Michigan, I think the majority would have been flipped in the House with like 2,500 votes total mm. across multiple districts. I so mean, does in, in Michigan, that is, are both chambers still in Republican hands, even though they're smaller majorities? Uh, they are. Okay. Again, the, the, uh, in the Senate, uh, the Democrats broke the supermajority. In the House, it looks like they'll go from 
uh, needing eight to tie down to needing three to tie. So more cut, uh, cut it more than half. And again, those districts are so close. So, so you know, so this multi-cycle investment in state legislature seems to matter. Mm-hmm. It's the reason that Arizona, which has started it just just in 2016, just you know, we helped them a lot build this year. It, it didn't overperform in the way some of these other places did, right. but it's, it grew maybe more than any other place. Interesting. So okay. that's one. The second is the individual candidates. So you know, there are candidates, the ones who knocked on the most doors, who worked the hardest, who outperformed, let's use Hillary 2016 as a base, mm-hmm. the most. Now, big overperformance would be three, four, five points. It's not a 20-point overperformance right. versus the candidates who, who weren't quite as strong in that way and underperformed. So in Michigan, only two challengers in the state house underperformed Hillary. And they were the two most competitive districts that didn't flip. Hmm. And uh, you, you kind of see that across the board. Arizona's a good case. You actually had a, a strong candidate named Christine Marsh in maybe the strongest district, a district Hillary won, uh, running against one of the best known and most popular state legislators in the state. And as a result, looks like she didn't quite get over the top. Right, right. And right. so the individual candidate at Dynamics matter, which is why it matters so much to invest. Because uh, the national wave sets the tone, sets the level, but multi-cycle uh, investment in legislative campaigns can change that baseline within a state, and then good candidates or less strong candidates mm-hmm. can overperform that. And when you look at the difference in these chambers in control, that's what you're seeing across the country. Now, and you made the point, and it's not... Terribly surprising, but we don't necessarily like focus on this. That relatively small amounts of money can fully fund a whole legislative state, uh, legislative uh, uh, slate in a lot of states. And so, people who are you mentioned these giving circles, but even in in in, in basically, you know, if you can. You may be just like a middle class person, but you can be like a mini, you know, Sheldon Adelson when it comes to like state legislative races. So walk us through that. What the amounts of money that that are needed, these giving circles, and 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 what can what can we draw from, you know, how effective it was. Right. Well, it's a little early to know exactly how effective it was, but you know, we know that. Uh, when you look at the differences in a place like Arizona, getting so much closer than it's ever gotten. In the Senate, we may end up picking up no seats, but we have three candidates who look like they got 47.5% or closer, mm-hmm. right, without, without getting to 50. Right. Um, you know, in Arizona, the difference in spending uh, from not being able to fund their campaigns to feeling like they were pretty close to full funding this year was less than a $2 million difference. The total spend for both houses of legislature is, is I believe, will come in at less than five million total, all in for both chambers. Right. So when you say two million, we're not talking about a candidate like it is in the House of Representatives. You're talking about the whole, the whole thing. Let's let's be really clear about that. You're talking about ninety state legislative districts, uh, or or state legislators in the case of Arizona, because of overlapping districts, and uh, it's the same as true in Michigan, in in New Hampshire. Uh, you know, literally uh, total contribution of about $50,000 into the state was the difference between having some polling and none, mm-hmm. having a digital director and some digital program or none. 
Right. And okay. that's two chambers. Right. And, right. You know, I, right. It, it, the, it, the numbers are unbelievable. Think of a competitive congressional race um, and what those numbers are coming in at or a competitive gubernatorial race. Right. Or Beto O'Rourke, who, you know, overperformed and, and did extraordinarily well. But at the end of the day, probably 40 million dollars. Did that show up in the in? Obviously, I, mean, I, I have no doubt the state legislature in, in Texas is still Republican, but did the numbers move within those minorities? They did, yeah. In Texas, um, uh, in the House, twelve seats flipped. Okay, uh, which you know doesn't doesn't change the balance of power, but is a real overperformance uh, in Texas. And you know, and and by the way, you know, uh, there was some effort at the state legislative uh, level. I think the Beto thing again changed kind of the environment mm-hmm. and the dynamic uh, in a real way. So, uh, really small amounts of money have huge impacts. Uh, you know, in, in Michigan, there are candidates who won, who, who for the candidate themselves, raised well less than $100,000. There are candidates who are within uh, 1,000 or so votes who raised $50,000 total for the entire campaign. So if you think about that, you could have increased their spending by 20% mm-hmm. with the $10,000 right. support. Right. It's really meaningful. So are there particular states where something changed, you know, flipped a chamber, changed the, you know, composition, blah, 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 where we say, ah, now this is going to happen, or now this will be, pre- you know, uh, prevented. Are there kind of action items as opposed to, I mean, obviously there's there's lots of different things, but are there states where there are specific things that we'd point to that based on what happened? Of course. Ago? And, and, you know, and both when you flip and when you don't, Virginia is a great example of that, came within literally a single vote of flipping the House last year. Even though they didn't have control of the chamber at the end of the day, passed Medicaid expansion, passed a vastly better um, both consumer and environment energy bill. Um, so, uh, yeah, the New York Senate is an obvious one, right? New York State, there is a uh, whole dam full of uh, uh, great and important legislation from voting laws uh, to um, protecting against the Trump court. Uh, to clean energy uh, and and making energy cheaper, all of which really should move now mm-hmm. with super majorities in both chambers and a Democratic governor. Um, you know, North Carolina is an interesting one, right? So North Carolina, uh, among other things, the legislature overrode a veto uh, protecting um, uh, big industrial hog farms from uh, being sued by homeowners whose homes had been ruined by aerosoled uh, hog waste. Um, in an override of the veto, that kind of thing won't be happening in North Carolina right. anymore. So, in a sense, y- y- you. So, uh, I'm spacing on the uh, governor's name, but he's been in for two years. Cooper, right? right okay. Cooper, yeah. Governor Cooper. So, really, y- you, it in those two years, it's more like you didn't have a Republican governor, but you kind of also didn't have a Democratic governor or one with dramatically limited powers because of those supermajorities. The kind of a whole array of things that he could do could be could be like nullified legislatively. Right, yeah, nullified or they could they could pass things, right? So right. the legislature has this affirmative right kind of role that, you know, the courts and the executive don't have in the same way. Right. The executive administers there's a lot of power in administering. Right. But right. the affirmative right. stuff, you can't pass a bill if it doesn't come out of the legislature. Right. And legislature overrides a bill you got to follow the law. Yep. So, yep. you know, that it, it, stuff really does start in the legislature. It is the people's representative place. Um, you know, in uh, as, as we look at it, you know, I think that voting laws are an important one. So I think in Michigan, where you have much more tenuous legislative majorities uh, for Republicans and a Democratic governor, 
I think you're you're certainly going to protect against some bad voting actions mm-hmm. that you know would really be directed at the Electoral College in 2020 and might even get some good stuff to happen. That's what you saw in Virginia. As you saw some members of the majority, uh, the Republican majority, saw the writing on the wall and with Medicaid expansion, right. uh, were willing to do it. Um, so. It, you know, the impact is big. And remember the impact, by the way, the impact in Arizona, I think we could see. It's a state that's 49th in the country in teacher pay, the wildcat strikes that galvanize mm-hmm. both the state and the elections mm-hmm. and the country. I think you're going to see enormous pressure to reinvest in schools in a real way, to reinvest in teachers. And... Um, that's you know that's a that's a meaningful thing. They were really heading down the Betsy DeVos uh, strategy mm-hmm. of uh, of education, mm-hmm. and I think that's been fully arrested, even without taking either chamber. Now, in a normal after a normal midterm, when there's you know lower turnout, all the, all that kind of stuff, we would think that in the next presidential election, you maybe build on these gains. Um, obviously, this was not a normal midterm. You had you had massive turnout on both sides, um, which in some ways is kind of the story of the night that you had like someone it's, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm reminded of this because I, I don't normally like to quote Rick Santorum, but he, he made this point on one of the shows on, on election night. And he's right that to have a true wave election, you normally need one side totally juiced up and the other side low energy, demoralized, and then you have not only kind of what we had on Tuesday, but you've got a lot of races that 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 get won kind of because the other side didn't show up. And those are going to get lost, but they're good to have them for a while. Um, what do what do we think going into to 2020? Do we th- well, you tell me, I mean, how are, 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 you know, how many of these, how many of these gains are um, you know, feel defensible. How many of the things that didn't quite get there that they can be built on? What do you What do you see going into into twenty twenty? Like when I was in office, I would always say that you you don't uh, get elected your first time on issues for better or worse, but you get reelected on governing well. And so, in places where they have the majority or they're close enough, good governing by these growing caucuses mm-hmm. really does change the game because strong incumbents who have delivered meaningfully for their constituents, consistent with their constituents' values, mm-hmm. are very, very hard to beat. And and that's more so than at the federal level when there's more, is because there's more polarization. Like, give me... Like, you know, there's there's a lot of, I want to be a little careful because there's sort of a lot of view on this. Mm-hmm. It's it, it maybe a little murkier to prove it, but there is a view that if you can, as a state legislator, get known by over 50% of the likely voters in the district, which many, many incumbents are not, mm-hmm. that that's real protection because knowing a state legislator means literally knowing them in person. Right, right. And right. Uh, you know, one reason it's hard to see is, is a lot of legislators never get to that level. Right. So, uh, you know, there's a view that it's more in an incumbent's control if they do the work. Got it. Got I, again, not not necessarily a proven mm-hmm. view. Although, if anyone out there has the proof on it, I'd love to see it. Um, right, right. Uh, that's one thing. The second is uh, what I said before: the presidential election is going to really set a watermark, very in a very significant way nationally. But because state legislatures on the Democratic side, especially, have been so underinvested in, because there's so few states with the kind of infrastructure that North Carolina and Colorado have, there's still room to grow. 
Okay. So, you know, there are national features that meant over 900 seats under the Obama years. There's gerrymandering. But there's also the fact that as a structural matter, their side invests and has invested for 40 years in a profit-driven control of state legislatures. It is new that we are having this conversation. It is new that people are focusing resources and expertise on legislatures. So I believe it's two years out, so luckily it'll be forgotten by then, but I'll make a prediction for two years from now. I believe that there is still room to grow in legislatures above the national wave. So that whatever we see with the presidential election, if we do our job and we do things right, you will see more growth in state legislatures in 2020 than you would expect or than you see in a, rel- in a relative way in the House or the U.S. Senate. And how much, final question, it, how much, like I think about um, Michigan, obviously strong night in Michigan for uh, Democrats. Uh, there was the open, the, at least two pickups. There was the open seat that they won. And then there was, I think, Bishop is the, uh, Haley versus Bishop, Haley, Dem- the Democrat. Anyway, good night for, for Democrats. And yet, Republicans still control the state legislature. Now, is that A lot basic- of gerrymandering. Okay, so how much of it is gerrymandering and how much of it is basically uh, incumbency and inertia? Kind of going to your point, it is it's it is you're arguing it is easier for incumbents to control their fate at the state level than it maybe is at the federal level. So, Whit, is it, is it like why, why, di- why didn't those race, you know, why didn't those uh, 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 houses flip? Right. So, so the, the gerrymandering is, is a real problem there, so that even if you win, like uh, Whitmer won, I think by nine, or it looks like nine for governor, um, you know, there was a theory that, that y- you know, uh, if she was up by 11 or 12, that, that could have helped. That's one thing. The other thing is, like, when you get down to the district by district level, candidates matter. There were some candidates that overperformed. They're, you know, as I said before, within 2,500 votes of flipping the majority across Mm -hmm. three districts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, someone named Dan O'Neill, who knocked on thousands upon thousands of doors, looks like he's down by only a couple of hundred votes. And, you know, it's going to come up short. And, you know, and among the Democratic candidates, this is just what happens. You know, there was one and and she got no support from our group or, or from the caucus who, you know, was indicted. In August, uh, that's not a strong candidate. Yeah, I think that, we can that never all that agree. Never, that she, never. It's not a strength, at least. No, she. She. Under- Although you've got a, you got you had some pretty pretty uh, pretty good Republican indictees who brought it home. I mean, anyone at who the claims, federal level, anyone who claims a party has a monopoly on that is yeah. uh, lying. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, so so she underperformed. That that was no longer a district that right. was a play, even though it was one of the more competitive districts. Now, was that an incumbent or was that a? No, ch- it was a, a challenger. It was a challenger. Yeah. So, so, you know, so that happened. Problems there you know, in, er, in early Michigan. analysis is that the Upper Peninsula of Michigan actually uh, performed worse than we would have expected up and down Got for, redder, for Senator, basically. For Senator yeah. Stabenow yep. and Governor-elect Whitmer and state legislature. So that so the only incumbent Democrat who lost was was up in that part of the state. And that sort of follows the national model. Red areas get redder, are getting redder, blue areas getting bluer, and the the blue team taking a taking a some territory from the sort of the the purpler areas. Right. I think that's right. I think a really interesting one is going to be Arizona. There's a district in Arizona that's really close, both in the Senate and in the House. Uh, it has, uh, I think most of the Navajo Nation is within the district, mm-hmm. also the city of Flagstaff. Mm. And it's, it's a, you know, a near, statistically basically a dead heat now uh, for both the Senate, where I think uh, the Democrats down about two, current count. Um, and the House, where uh, the Democrats down less than that, 
and what that district looked like, what the sort of more rural mm-hmm. areas did is going to be a really interesting question. We don't have an answer yet, but are there places that are neither urban nor suburban that didn't get redder? Right. And by the way, conversely, are there suburban areas that didn't get much bluer? Right, right. Those counter stories, I think, are going to be really important to look at. State legislative uh, districts are going to be well-suited for that analysis. Teasing that out. So, uh, final, second final question. Am I right that most states follow something like the federal model where lower house, everybody's up every two years and then staggered at the, in the upper chamber, like more or less? Uh, more or less. There, uh, well, many more state senates have two-year terms. Interesting. So, so you do. So, there are a number of cases where kind of everybody's up every two years, and it's all it's all on the table. A, a lot of states are that way. So, so my recollection is eighty-seven out of the ninety-nine chambers had at least part of the chamber up this year. Okay. Um, and and the vast majority of those had the entire chamber up. Interesting. Okay. So it's so it's maybe even more the norm. It's or or the. Uh, it happens a lot. It, it, they're it not all like the federal, the federal, uh, the federal right. model. So Minnesota had no one up. Um, uh, my recollection is, uh, well, I don't want to speak out of turn, but yeah, it, 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 senates go back and forth. On got that. it. Got New York it. State Senate is a two-year term. Remind us again the name of the organization. Future Now. And and basically that is a an organization. One of your one of your major roles is facilitating giving into state legislatures around the country for Democrats. Exactly right. 7,200 state legislative seats, 99 chambers, 50 different campaign finance laws. Uh, We do the research and the analysis and make it really easy to have an outsized impact on these races. And what's the URL? FutureNow.org. Easy to remember. All right. Let's let's not forget that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Swirl. That means, are you ready to drink some Grady's? It's actually really good. Uh, Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. It's great with cinnamon. Oh, well, there there you go. Everybody's got their own little twist on it. David, thanks a bunch, man. Thanks, Josh. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.